Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the federal government says it will work with Canadian companies to make up to 30,000 ventilators. And if we end up making more ventilators than Canada needs because Canadians continued to stay social distancing, continued uh, to follow best health advice, that'll be great news. Uh, and we will have ventilators to share with other countries that are facing more difficult circumstances. Will Canada run into more problems getting medical equipment from the United States? When it comes to medical equipment and medical services, the relationship between Canada and the United States is one of interdependence. It is a reciprocal and balanced relationship, and both countries do best when we work Together. And what is Canada's plan if the coronavirus is brought under control here, but not in other parts of the world? What we see in countries that have crested their first wave is that uh, they have to keep a very close eye on new cases. And uh, until we all have a global solution, um, this virus will be with us and we'll all have to work together to prevent uh, its re-emergence in any of our countries. It's Wednesday, April the 8th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald, Dan Legere. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Mark. So the federal government is going to work with some Canadian companies now to make ventilators. And uh, this uh, there obviously is a lot to this. It's quite interesting to see companies that are normally in other fields now shifting gears and, and producing medical equipment. Uh, I think it also raises for some people the idea that, at least briefly, we're returning to a more self-sufficient kind of economy rather than importing equipment and other devices from around the world. Uh, and it's raising questions about, in the future, whether we need to protect ourselves from this kind of risk by having more manufacturing in this country. So a lot of interesting themes there, aren't there? Well, yeah. And, and you know, one of the, I mean, this is one of the many, many sort of unforeseen uh, results or, or effects of this whole crisis. Um, and I think Canadians, quite rightly, are saying, all right, we've got to be more self-sufficient on a whole bunch of levels. Um, you know, you have uh, companies bending their manufacturing capa- uh, capacity to make ventilators. That's something you can't make in your backyard, you know, and... Uh, 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 even companies like traditional firms like Stanfields down the road here uh, in Truro, Nova Scotia, has just landed a contract to make thousands and thousands of gowns and other protective gear. Uh, and that's a traditional old, you know, it's the Stanfield company and, and family from the days of Robert Stanfield that's, that's in that business still. And um, so, you know, uh, we've forgotten in the rush toward globalism and and free trade around the world how important some of these key industries are. And some of these key industries weren't even seen as that. You know, we we obsess a lot about high tech and military equipment and shipbuilding, quite rightly. Um, But at the same time, smaller and less glamorous uh, activities or, or businesses like making gowns and masks suddenly become extremely important. So um, I think when the dust settles from this eventually, um, I think Canada and Canadians are going to really have to sit down and say, okay, what are the key places where we really have to regain self-sufficiency? Because obviously we can't trust the Americans anymore, and um, the rest of the world is not going to stop in the next crisis to look after us if we don't do it ourselves. So I think this is one of the things that's almost perfectly predictable that at the end of this there's going to be a massive uh, 
recalculation of what's truly essential in our economy. And one of many things that uh, are going to be discussed, obviously, is ways to be better prepared for next time around. Uh, Now, you mentioned... Uh, that many Canadians will feel we can't trust Americans anymore uh, on in terms of uh, delivering supplies to Canada and accessing equipment in the United States, that sort of thing, based on what happened earlier this week with the uh, medical masks. Uh, is this Has this been resolved, or is it going to come up again the next time there's a big shipment? Is Donald Trump going to say, wait, put the brakes on that, uh, that's not going ahead, we need that for Americans, and we're going to have to have that whole conversation over again? Um, I don't think it's something that's going to go away, mainly because uh, I truly believe that Trump only does these things on momentary political impulses. Uh, I don't, I'm not aware of, and I follow this fairly closely, I'm not aware of any advice that the uh, U.S. administration was given by its experts that it had to close down the sort of free flow of, uh, of goods and, um, and materials across the border. Um, so, you know, and, and also, you know, if Canada complains about it in a public way, it just, it just, uh, I think, entrenches uh, Trump and his supporters. And uh, think, I'm sure a lot of Trump supporters think this is great. Who cares what happens to the rest of the world as long as we're all right? Um, but you know what? I don't think the world is going to unlearn the lessons of, of, uh, of economics, you know, where if it is cheaper to make something in one place, um, it's still going to be cheaper at the end of this to make it in that place. And there's going to be economic trade-offs that take place product by product and sector by sector. Um, but this is, and this is why it's going to be a process of evolution, I think, once we see what's, you know, what's actually happened. And I'd be very surprised if there wasn't, I don't want to call it a royal commission, but I would expect that the government, uh, when this is over, who's ever in charge is going to be, is going to want to say, look, Let's talk to the experts right across the whole uh, spectrum of, of society and find out what we did right and what we did wrong and have a good, honest, clear-eyed um, investigation of, of what happened and what could be better uh, done the next time. Yeah, it is interesting because obviously uh, countries need each other. Uh, if, if, if you've got certain supplies and, and others are made in another country, you need that that framework of international trade to continue working, but you can also understand the instinct that some people will have in certain circumstances of saying, we've got a lot of medical equipment within our country that we need. Can we really afford to have some of it shipped outside the country to somebody else, no matter how altruistic and fair that might be, no matter how consistent it might be with trade policy, uh, if if we're in a crisis, we may choose to behave differently. You can see how that temptation would be there, right? Yeah, and it's it's not unreasonable. I mean, you know, uh, and also there, there is the issue of establishing, you know, national and provincial stockpiles of some of these strategically important uh, products. Uh, who would ever think that the humble face mask would be considered something as important as uh, as oil or bullets, you know, in in a national crisis? Uh, you know, the, Canada over the years has rightly identified some real weaknesses it had, for instance, in military procurement. I mean, we can't even build trucks in this country half the time that are up to military spec. So, you know, this has caused some soul-searching, I know, in the Defense Department, but it should also cause soul-searching across health uh, Canada and in every province. It's the provinces that are ending up with the major responsibility 
um, you know, we the provinces run the hospitals, so that's where the, the bomb has landed. And um, so this has to be done in a different way. The, the way that Ottawa and the provinces manage health and manage health supplies has to change. And, uh, and there has to be a better way of keeping a handle on this. I mean, there's no reason why you can't have international trade on all these things, but you have to have enough stuff on hand that if it gets really bad, you're going to be okay and you're not going to be left in the lurch. We're watching the numbers, obviously, uh, this week in particular, because many people said this would be uh, potentially a, a crucial week, a potential turning point. Uh, so everyone's keeping an eye on that to see if if the curve starts to flatten in Canada. We're on a different timetable from other countries. So I think one of the questions that's come up and was asked of the health minister yesterday is, what if we get things under control here, but... Uh, they're not under control in other parts of the world. And uh, what does that mean for our borders, for international travel, for people coming into the country, all kinds of things like that? Um, What's your early sense of that? Obviously, a a big component of it is uh, where it might still be out of control, whether it's a neighbor like the United States or it's some country far around the world. Yeah, we're not going to be particularly concerned uh, in terms of the, you know, safety of Canadians if the COVID-19 outbreak, you know, remains in, in certain Pacific islands, say, or something like that. Uh, however, if it's still going strong in the United States or if it's still lingering there in, in any strength, we're going to have to um, take that into consideration because we still have trucks going across the border. And when the economy gets uh, back into better shape again and starts to return to something approaching normal, then the you know, uh, cross-border uh, trade on all kinds of levels is going to pick up again. Um, so it is important, and I, I mean, it's it's only common sense that the government is going to have to watch the borders. They're going to have to put more money and more people and more technology um, into the border uh, environment just to make sure that, um, you know, that that type of thing is, is held under control while keeping the essential nature of Canada as an open country and as a democratic country in place. And that's going to be the the test. You're going to see a political move from some parts of the political spectrum to uh, really shut down the borders and become super intense and, and, uh, and, uh, and tight on the borders in terms of allowing people in from certain parts of the world. But, you know, Canada is not going. I hope, I don't think, is, is that the nature of the country is going to change, but uh, a lot of policies uh, within that might. All right, Dan. Great to have your insights on all of this today. Thank you. Okay, Mark. That's Dan Legere, author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald. We need to be ready for uh, any circumstances and every circumstances, and the opportunity uh, to make sure that we have. Uh, ventilators available if we need them is going to be extremely important. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues Canada will need a new industrial policy for a new world. The Star writes, When worldwide supply chains fail and Canada is left scrambling for crucial medical equipment, relying on factories halfway around the world, doesn't seem like such a great idea anymore. Governments are enlisting Canadian companies in the fight against the virus, and hundreds are answering the call. This looks to be more than a temporary measure. We need to rebuild our industrial base and be prepared to rely more on our own resources. This pandemic will end, but other challenges are bound to follow. 
In the National Post, John Iveson argues public servants handling employment insurance claims are unsung heroes. Iveson writes, By Monday evening, the number of EI claims made since March 16th was 2.72 million. It's a staggering number, but the money to buy groceries or pay rent for more than 2 million hard-pressed families is either in their bank accounts or will be in the next day or two. This column and this newspaper have often been critical of the federal bureaucracy when it has failed Canadians. In this case, it appears that many public servants have gone above and beyond the call of duty. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute you. In the Hamilton Spectator, Jeffrey C. Martin, Lisa Alfano, and John Mills argue the time for basic income is now. They write, Socioeconomic sinkholes have formed across the country from the erosion of Canada's social and health security programs and traditional employment. Now we're confronted by a pandemic that is causing havoc. We will recover, but the COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated the need for a national basic income. There is no returning to the world we knew only a month ago. In the Globe and Mail, Lawrence Martin argues Canada's biggest Trumpland enemy is on the rise. Martin writes, Donald Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, is a driving force behind Trump's America First policies, and his reputation as Canada's public enemy number one is well-earned. His most recent hostile act was trying to prevent 3M from exporting protective masks to Canada. He was behind the plan for stationing troops near the Canadian border, an idea which has since been discarded. With Canada and other allies, he has wreaked havoc. More of the same can be anticipated. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. We're expecting a number of developments on the coronavirus front today. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on what to watch for. Mark, three more sets of modelling from three additional provinces will be released today. Alberta, Saskatchewan and Newfoundland and Labrador will all release their medical experts' best and worst-case scenarios for where COVID-19 may be headed in their provinces. They'll join Ontario, which last week produced modelling with a best-case scenario of 1,600 deaths by the end of April and a worst-case scenario of 6,000 deaths. Yesterday, Quebec released its modelling, which had projections of a most probable and best-case scenario of about 1,200 deaths in the province, and a worst-case scenario of about 9,000 deaths by the end of April. Last night, in a televised address, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney alluded to a probable scenario of between 400 and 3,100 deaths in Alberta by mid-May. One thing's for sure, with five provinces having weighed in with their hypothetical scenarios and their modelling, there'll be plenty for the majority of the Canadian population to reflect upon. And no doubt there will be new calls and increased pressure by the fe- on the federal government and on the Prime Minister to weigh in and share its national forecasting and uh, scenarios. Now, uh, while we're talking about giving people figures to chew on, tomorrow Statistics Canada will release its long-awaited labour market survey. And that is expected to show historic levels of unemployment in Canada. Difficult times and some stunning statistics to mull over. They're all a reminder of the seriousness of the challenge we are facing. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will chair the Cabinet meeting and then give his daily update on the coronavirus situation. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, April the 8th. Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day today for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis and primetime politics tonight. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.